Uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is take your Bible and turn with me to Romans. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans 5. I hope that you were able to see the little blurb on the home page off to the side that had two files there that dealt with a section in Romans 3 and a section in Romans 5. And the reason why I wanted you to access those and hopefully print those out, and if you haven't done that, that's okay. Don't freak out. Uh, you can always go back and listen to this again. Uh, and I'm not looking to move quickly through any of this information. Um, my responsibility, according to the Word of God in Colossians 1.28, is to proclaim Christ and admonish every person and teach every person with all wisdom so that I may present every person as being complete in Christ. And so my hope here is that you would uh, get this uh, rather than us getting through it quickly. And regardless if we have prolonged quarantine or we come back together, hopefully by the grace of God, and be able to meet as the physical body of Christ in this place again, regardless, our, our uh, trudging forward in study is not going to change. Um, I've been very excited about this. I'm very excited about finally getting to this. I've wanted to preach on this for quite a long time. and I've been trying to build everything since I arrived here in Portage up until this point. Uh, to where we can talk more in depth about these issues. And so uh, if you're able throughout the week to get those uh, handouts printed off so that you can mark up the text, I'm a big fan of marking up the text. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that in your own Bible, that's fine. You'll notice also that you have there uh, next to the screen, you've got discussion questions. If you've got a group that's meeting together, I encourage you to take full advantage of those. These discussion questions will take you just a little bit longer. It requires more involvement to view uh, than maybe what last week did, but we are starting uh, a new series uh, called Living the Christ Life. Uh, and again, let me reiterate, I don't want to call it Living the Christian Life. I think we need to get rid of that vocabulary. When we talk about living the Christian life, we talk about usually how much better we need to do at being obedient. And we talk about how much more submissive we need to be, and we talk about how uh, we need someone to hold us accountable. Uh, we start bringing in a lot of works language into the idea of the Christian life. And one of the greatest sins that we find the Apostle Paul address in the Scriptures is the sin uh, of the Galatian error. And the Galatian error is you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now that you are saved... Now that you are justified, you are, you are righteous before the Lord. He declares you righteous. You can now live your life by works. Uh, and, and I'm blown away by how many people teach that today and how uh, we have these uh, what are considered orthodox uh, evangelical churches that are talking about how important it is to uphold the Ten Commandments and these types of things. We are not under law. We are under grace. The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf, and we are not called to live a life of works. We are called to live by faith, and I think it is vitally important that we grasp this idea. Um, I want to give you some things uh, real quick as we look at Romans, uh, because we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to deal with the big idea that actually kicks off the walking with the Lord, the Christ life section. And then I want to go back and I actually want to cover what's happening in chapters three and four to get us to that point. And so if you look at Romans chapter five, verse one, you'll notice that the very first thing there is the word therefore. Anytime that you see the word therefore, ask yourself the question, what is that therefore? What is this referring back to? Now, what I do, and in this situation, and the reason why I've given you these papers with double spaces is so that you can write all over this. What I do in a lot of these situations is I will uh, find for or therefore, because of its previous um, connection to whatever was going on beforehand, I will heavily underline that word, and then I will kick a little arm out to the left, and I will point an arrow going back back or going up. And the reason why I do that is because I'm recognizing that in light of what was just stated or the point that was just made in Paul's um, exposition that he's bringing out here, 
he is getting ready to, to proceed forward in his argument, and he's getting ready to make some profound statements. Um, now, real quick, you can talk to any pastor, and if they want to give you the safe answer, they're going to tell you, well, all Scripture is God-breathed, and so therefore I love all passages of Scripture. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you right now that most of them are lying uh, because every pastor loves Romans. Uh, every professor loves Romans, uh, and I don't think that's a unique thing. I think that there's every reason why the Christian should love Romans, because in it, Paul is displaying the full grace of God and all that has been accomplished for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason alone, we need to spend ridiculous amounts of time in this book, reading slowly, letting it marinate, saturating ourselves in everything that it has to say. Not saying that other parts of Scripture are not worthy and awesome. They totally are. They totally are. But for the Christian today living in the church age, living in this present dispensation, we need to be familiar with the book of Romans because of everything it talks about, because our eyes need to be solely focused on Jesus and him alone. So therefore, and therefore is what we're going to go back and deal with today. Notice it says, having been justified by faith, what does having been automatically bring to your mind? Hopefully it strikes you that it is an already done deal, that it is something that has already occurred, that it is a fact of the matter. So notice, therefore, having been justified by faith, what does justified mean? We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but let me give you the quick answer. Declared righteous. The believer in Christ has been declared righteous. Declared righteous by God. God is the one to whom we are accountable to. He is the only person that we are answerable to. And because of that, we have to give an account. In giving an account, we are found without hope. We are found completely destitute. <clears throat> There's no successful argument we could ever bring to the courtroom, which he would look at us and say, you know what, now I understand, you're acquitted. That will never happen. And so we need to be declared righteous. And again, we'll talk more about that, but notice, justified how? By faith. Faith alone is the channel by which one is justified. It is the response to hearing the gospel message. I think it's vitally important that we understand that faith is not a work. It is not meritorious. We have a lot of people that want to promote this idea that faith is a gift. Uh, believing... Faith, if we want to call it saving faith, which the Bible never really does, if we want to call it saving faith, saving faith is not a gift from God. It is a capacity that is issued to us when we hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. It's a response. It is not something of merit. If you talk about the spiritual gift of faith, as is brought up in Romans chapter 12, that is a gift of God. But that's for the Christian to edify the body of Christ in living out the Christ life. That has nothing to do with go to heaven when you die terminology. It's a hearing of the gospel of God's grace and supplying Jesus Christ for the sins of the world that generates faith in the unbeliever. Apart from the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, one cannot believe because anything that you or I would believe would be of no substance and would have no power to redeem us. But if you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ... We're told very clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, let me just ask you, if you have theological predispositions to this and you've studied Calvin's Institutes to the Hilt or whatever you want to say, Reformed theology, all of this other stuff, I ask you to lay it down and simply take God at his word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's where faith comes from. You hear the word, you believe it, and at that moment, you are sealed with the Spirit, given eternal life as a free gift, and you are declared righteous by the Almighty Judge. Faith is a response to the gospel of God's grace, not an act of merit or of self-decision. It's a response to the truth by an individual that's elicited once that truth is heard. So, I hope that that's a clear situation that we're dealing with. Again, we'll get more into that later, but I think it's important for us to establish that fact because it's talking about something that is already ours. It's already happened. Having been justified by faith, look what it says. We have 
peace with God. Now, right now, with everything that you're seeing, if you've been trolling around on social media, I can guarantee you that you're not a person that's coming to, to the table with peace right now. One of the uses of the word cosmos in the Bible, the word that we get for world, is the world system that Satan has orchestrated. He's carefully crafted it and knit it together like a spider web in order to lead people astray. Uh, in fact, it is saturated everything. In, in fact, I've, I've been reading this book lately by a woman named Ruth Paxson. She has this quote on the world, and uh, it's from her book called Life on the Highest Plane. And let me read this quote to you. It'll come up here on the screen for you. It says, This satanic system, the world, is like a colossal octopus that has sent forth myriads of tentacles to lay hold upon every phase of human life and draw it unto itself. It has its grip upon the corporate life of mankind and its homes, marts, schools, politics, even its churches. It has penetrated into every relationship of the individual's life, personal, family, social, national, and international. The world, which is a human society with God left out, is Satan's snare for capturing men and holding them in bondage. This cosmos, this world system, is a human society with God left out. Some of you may be going crazy because your kids are at home and are not at school. Take a moment and praise God. Praise God for that. At least they're not hearing that in the beginning there was no God. Stuff just exploded. That is an idea of leaving God out of the picture of human society and creating unbelief in the world. That is the twistedness that we're dealing with. So this world has no peace in it whatsoever. Notice what Romans 5.1 says. Having been justified by faith, we have peace. That means now. That means already. In fact, this Greek word means to possess it. Peace is your present possession. You say, well, I don't feel God's peace. You've heard me say this before. Praise God it's not resting on our feelings. Praise God that the fact of the matter is, is that we have peace with God. Now, you may not have peace about your surroundings. You might not have peace with the lack of a paycheck right now. You may not have peace with your isolated condition. Maybe you're starting to get a little stir crazy. Maybe you're worried about the future. But you already have peace in the most important avenue that's ever existed. And that is peace with God because... Before that, we had no peace with God. Before we came into a place of peace with God, we did not have peace with God. And what's scary about that is we probably had a lot of peace with the world. I would like to think that we've got a really great exchange that's gone on here, one that is full of grace, and that we have peace with the Almighty Creator. The world is going to go to hell, people. It's important for us to understand that. Everything that we see around us is going to burn, and it is going to burn righteously. There is no hope in this world. There is no hope in this flesh. And the greatest problem that we have with the flesh is because it is tainted by the principle of sin is that it is heavily connected to the world. And that is the fight that we have on our hands in looking at the notion of the Christ life and Christ living his life through us. Praise God right now that we have peace with Him. And how do we know that this is a good thing? Here it is. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is, is anytime I'm going through a text, and I'll mark this up, and again, you can do your own thing as you go through. I just want you to have it in front of you so you can, you can be active with it. Is when I see the word through, and because I've got double space in order to do something like this, I will underline the word through twice, but I will leave a pretty decent amount of space between the two underlines. And the reason is, is because I want to put a little arrow in between those two underlines going to the source of my peace. And notice what it says. We have peace with God through, through what? Through who? Our Lord 
Jesus Christ. One of the greatest mistakes that we've made as believers, as well-meaning as we, as we are, if we've been brought up in certain situations where we've been told, well, if you were really saved, you'd feel peace about this situation, and our salvation is brought into question, that type of teaching has completely missed the point. Peace is not a feeling, it's a person. We often talk about here at Grace Bible Church how truth is a person. Peace is a person. And it's the same person that truth is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, capital I-S, He is our peace. And we are in Him. We are in Him at the moment that we respond in faith to the gospel of God's grace. We are now not only declared righteous by God, by faith, but we also now have peace because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peace. This is incredible. If we were to spend any time in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, we would find out that he became guilty for us so that we could be acquitted of all wrongdoing. The peace wasn't cheap. It was great expense on Christ's account. But because of the joy that was set before him, he went forward and he endured the cross. And now that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is a minister of peace. He is the means of peace between us and a holy God. It's all his work. It's all his work. He has made peace in the cross. So because we have this therefore at the beginning of this verse, and by the way, we actually have uh, Scripture memorization cards with Romans 5.1 on them, but it's going to be very difficult to try to get that uh, to you in this situation. So when we return, Lord willing... Uh, we will be able to distribute those freely. But because we have the therefore, and because peace is a present possession that we have, seeing that we did not have that initially, maybe you've also lost that sense of peace that you initially had when you came to Christ. Let's go back and let's take a look at how this peace came about. That's an important study for us. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, and I don't have this part in double-spaced Scripture for you, but I'm going to ask you to turn back to Romans 1. And I want to show you something briefly, just in order to explain the book of Romans so that we're all up to speed. What is the book of Romans about? <clears throat> the book of Romans is about the much more life of the Christian and how the believer in Christ is not only saved from certain spiritual death, but also by allowing Christ to demonstrate His righteousness through us and how we live, we can be people who avoid the wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, if you were with us through our overly depressing sermon series on the death parade, uh, it was very depressing for me. Um, you, we, we walked through Romans chapter 1, verses 18, actually 16, through 32, and we dealt in detail with the main problems that our world deals with, and we found out that it's a heart issue that's rendered in unbelief, and it manifests itself in God's wrath being poured out because of that unbelief and the sinful acts that we commit because we have no other hope. But what I want to draw your attention to is verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. We're familiar with this, and Romans 16 is often touted uh, as the thesis statement or the main verse of this entire book. Uh, I'm going to disagree with that because I believe that 17 is indispensable and speaks more to the true nature of the book. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the question is why? Notice your causal conjunction. For it is the power, now that's important because that's an attribute of God, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the idea here is, 
It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is already believing, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This book was not written to unbelievers. It was written to Christians. It was written to believers in Christ. And so the idea is is that the gospel displays God's power. And it displays God's power and the idea of saving us. Now you might say, well, if we believe in Christ, aren't we already saved? Absolutely, we have been saved. But I would go ahead and contend with you that the Bible very much speaks that we need to be saved now and that we will be saved in the future. All three of those are perfectly acceptable to see. I have been saved from the penalty of spiritual death because of sin. Hopefully, by yielding myself to the Word of God and the Spirit working through me as the Word has taken root in me, me recognizing more of who Christ is on my behalf and in my stead, I am being saved from the power of sin, the sin principle that is presently in my life. Why is that? Because I cannot get rid of the flesh as long as I am living this life. This flesh has been likened to trying to run a marathon while carrying along a dead corpse on your shoulders. That's probably a really good picture of the way of looking at it. It is extra weight that often drags us down. And the book of Romans is written with the purpose of helping the believer in Christ understand how to deal with the corpse, how to deal with the sin nature. Why? Because God's wrath is being passively poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness in places where we suppress the righteousness. There is no discrimination between believer and unbeliever as far as suppressing righteousness. Believers can sin just like, if not more so, than unbelievers. If you don't believe me on that one, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They were participating in that church in the type of behavior that unbelievers did not even participate in. That's a very sobering statement. So now look at verse 17. For, here's your causal conjunction. Again, here's the explanation. In it, the righteousness of God. Now notice that. The connection is the demonstration of the power of God for salvation. And the idea here is is the, is the idea of a, um, a saving of sin in the daily life or from sin in the daily life. And that is the manifestation of the righteousness of God in that salvation. So notice, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made manifest from faith to faith. And I believe that is from justification to sanctification, from not just being declared righteous, but also manifesting Christ's righteousness as Christ lives his life through ours. As it is written, now watch this everyone. But the righteous, notice that, those already declared righteous. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Notice, it's not about law. It's not about works. It's not about deeds. None of that. It is the fact of how does a righteous person live? They live in the same way that they were justified, and that is by faith. So, How does a righteous person, how does someone who's been declared righteous by God live this Christ life, not giving in to sin, not committing repeated acts of sin, not falling prey constantly and repeatedly to the sin principle that dwells within each of us? How do we deal with that? This is what the book of Romans is all about. Now, with that being said, I'm going to ask you to turn forward to chapter 3. And we're actually going to start in verse 1. And let me go ahead and take a moment and plug a book that if you were looking to have a library that matters, I think this is an indispensable book that you would need to have. It's called New Testament Life and Belief. New Testament Life and Belief. And it's by uh, a guy who is, uh, I can't even remember where he teaches at right now. Uh, but he's one smart cookie. His name is Jerry M. Period Hollinger. Jerry Hollinger is his name, middle initial M, as in monkey. Jerry Hollinger is his name, H-U-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. And on Amazon, you can get this book for $40. Um, don't know how long it'll take to get to you with the present circumstances, but it's a good book. 
Uh, it's fantastic. And he, he's, what he's done in his book regarding the New Testament is he walks through every book and he actually answers the questions that are often asked of the text that the, the commentaries play it too safe and they don't want to necessarily address some of those things. And he does a fantastic job of dealing uh, with all issues and, and turning over the stones that need to be turned over to look at. So I encourage you to invest in that book. It's a book that matters in your library, New Testament Life and Belief by Jerry Hollinger. Hollinger summed up the whole idea of the argument of Paul getting into chapter 3, verse 1 of Romans in this way. Paul's condemnation reaches its pinnacle when he writes that the uncircumcised Gentile would be acceptable before God, before the circumcised Jew. Now, if you know anything about the racial tensions that existed and how first century Jews looked at Gentiles, uh, that's a really startling statement. That is a club over the top of the head type of statement. Uh, to make to a Jew, those who seek to live uh, religiously and and to keep the law and to be uh, upstanding people who are holy and righteous. The very definition of religion always has works attached to it. Um, And so as far as they were concerned, they were striving in order to be acceptable before God in all those aspects. Paul makes a fantastic argument of saying, if you've got a Gentile who doesn't have the law and he's keeping the law just because the law has been written on his heart by God, Does he not condemn the Jew that's trying to achieve righteousness by works of the law? And what he's saying is, is yes, he does. And so an objection comes along in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Does the Jew have an advantage if he can be condemned because he doesn't keep his own law that God's given him? And notice what it says, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Circumcision was a sealing of the covenant that was given to Abraham, the three promises that were made, land, seed, and blessing. And that took place in Genesis chapter 19. It says here, verse 2, it's great in every respect. It's great to be a Jew in every respect, and it's great to have circumcision in every respect. Does that mean for all of us to go out and do that now? No, that's not what it's talking about. That's not Paul's point. He says it's great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, they were a highly privileged people with an amazingly great heritage to where they could actually know the Creator, and the Creator was initiating an active relationship with the Jewish people. So the fact that they have all this prior knowledge of Him, establishing Him as the Creator of all things, and divinely speaking to them audibly from the mountain uh, when Moses led the children of Israel there so that they would know that He was there, that He was caring for them, that He was leading them through the wilderness, all of those things. They have an incredible advantage of knowing God. So that's not to be discounted in any way. So notice he anticipates another objection, verse 3, what then? If some, being Jews, did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? In other words, because Jews didn't believe what God had said, is God obligated to hold fast to His Word? Now that would be insane for God to break His Word. God always keeps His promises despite Israel's or anybody else's unbelief. Our unbelief is specifically our personal responsibility or the failure thereof. So it doesn't It doesn't stop God from being faithful and doing exactly what he said. So notice what he says, verse uh, verse 4, may it never be. This is a strong negation in the Greek. It's, It's actually brought up 11 times in Romans, and it seems to be brought up in times where the character of God or what he's spoken by his word uh, is at risk of being marred in some way. Notice, may it never be. Heck no, that's not the way you should ever think of it. That's not even a possibility. Get that off your radar is the type of idea. He says, rather, let God be found true. And why is that? Because God is the one who not only sets the standard, but is the standard. Though every man be found a liar. And here's the reason why. is because God can use anyone's choice of sin for his glory. Uh, No one is excused in that situation. He says here, that you may be justified, as it is written, that you may be justified. In other words, that God may be proven correct in his word and prevail when you are judged. Now here's what's interesting about this. 
is that this is actually taken from Psalm 51. And if you're familiar with Psalm 51, it is the psalm that David wrote after he had been confronted uh, by Nathaniel the prophet regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And when he came to terms with it, the, the, the two lines right before this deal with the idea of, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned, which is a, an incredible statement that he makes. He understands, David understands that when he sins, it is directly and immediately an offense to the face of God. That's important to understand in this situation because what we're dealing with here in this section of Romans is we're dealing with objections that people would have that their sin is not their fault, that they're just a victim. Then they're looking for some sort of scapegoat that will excuse them before the presence of a holy God so that he will not condemn them as unrighteous. And that is the problem. So when David writes this, that you may be justified in your words, in other words, God, that you're proven correct, that your word always stands true, and that God's righteousness is always measured according to his faithfulness to his word, and that you'll prevail when you are judged. When you go to judge, your judgment is always right. It's always just. Why? Because it's always in accordance with the standard of your word. Now watch this next objection in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now you might say, what in the world is he talking about that? Let's say it this way. If I lie, and the Ten Commandments tells me that I should not lie, am I not just proving that God's right in what he says? It almost sounds like in that situation, I've helped God out. I've actually helped God prove his point more by my unrighteous act and showing that he has a righteous standard. Does that not suffice? And notice what it says after that. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he says, I'm speaking in a human way. And look at this. Again, the strong negation, verse 6, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? In other words, God could not successfully judge the world's sins. He wouldn't be fit for it if he allowed unrighteousness to go because somehow we think from a limited, messed up human perspective that we've actually helped God prove himself and his standard out by our act of sin. That's an insane argument. You say, well, why would anyone argument? I guarantee you this. Sometimes we find ways to argue that every week of our life. We will find some way to make sense of our willing sin in some way that God should just let it pass and not deal with it, uh, that God should just give us a freebie. Uh, and that is not how God works. God keeps perfect accounts on all fronts. Now, again, let's not get lost in the details of this argument here. And let me help you out for just a second. I found this helpful every time I've looked over this passage. When we think about the idea of the law, or we think about law keeping or something like that, simply think about the idea of works uh, and the false idea of works righteousness, or what we would call probably religion today, is that you're accepted by your works. If you do enough, try hard enough, give up enough things, that's how God will accept you on those grounds. Uh, this was never God's intention of the law. The giving of the law was always a means of drawing Israel into closer fellowship with him so that they would display his glory to the surrounding nations. Um, did it allow for sin? Absolutely it did, because sacrifices were commanded in the law for when they broke the law. That was also part of the law. So we don't want to lose sight of that whatsoever. But the problem is, is that when you took something like the law, which is righteous and holy and good and right in its own, as God designed it, and you put it in the hands of sinful men, they cannot help but to do anything but manipulate it. We see that has happened to the grace of God and the teaching of salvation by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone today in tons and tons of churches by well-meaning people. When you put something that God has divinely administered forward into the hands of people, if they do not hold fast by the constant reminder of the Word of God, they will distort it and screw it up. That's just what happens. Uh, it is our job, the reason why we are to hold that much more faithfully, to make sure that we have uh, the truthfulness of the gospel in mind. Um, and forgive me for jumping on the little soapbox right now. I'm sure you can all picture me doing that. But this is the reason why Paul writes such a strong, strong um, letter of Galatians. 
in the beginning. He says that if anyone preaches another gospel other than what Paul handed down to them, they are to be anathema, they are to be accursed, is the idea. Uh, because there is no other gospel. Any other idea of a gospel, adding it to the work of Christ, is something that put works on behalf of men and women to perform or to intend to perform in order to be secured by God. And that distorts the gospel, and it robs the cross and the blood of its power. Uh, so again, um, I, don't, I can't stay, say it strong enough. That is a damnable position that someone takes upon themselves in that way, and we should not tolerate it uh, for any second of any moment. If you want to know what that's commonly called today, it is called lordship salvation, and it needs to be avoided uh, at every possibility that we possibly can. We cannot afford uh, to mess up the grace of God in something as important as the gospel, that when we tell it to people, it actually brings people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of everything that Jesus Christ has done for them. Again, it's his work. It's his work. Leave the work on the cross. Do not put it on the person that needs to be saved. So notice, God can judge justly because the failure of people does not infringe any way upon his faithfulness to his word and his righteous standard. They're guilty, yes, but that doesn't change the way that God operates. Verse 7, here's another objection. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded. In other words, that my lie was shown to be a big old lie. Notice, the, the truth of God abounded to his glory. He got glory because everybody goes, whoa, God was right on this one. Lying is wrong. Notice what it says here. And this is, this is just a weaselly little part of Scripture. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? How can you judge me as a sinner if I helped out God? I was just doing my part. Number one, God does not need our help. We are not helping God out by sinning. Uh, we don't need it in any way. Uh, I have a quote here by Evan Hopkins. Sin is not an essential element in the constitution of our humanity. We were perfectly created by God before sin ever entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3 without it. We do not need it. And so this argument of excusing sin and therefore excusing a sinner because somehow we've brought more glory to God is ridiculous. Verses 7 and 8 in this chapter are rationales that seek to excuse the standard of righteousness that's been set forward. Uh, perfect righteousness is the requirement, and it's placed on everyone. Um, you cannot avoid God's judgment in this way by trying to weasel your way out of it. Now, here's what's interesting about the objection in verse 8. Because if you notice, let's read through this and let's talk about it. And why not say, and notice you've got like a little parenthetical section here, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say. Now, here's what that means. It means that there was gossip going on in the ranks regarding what Paul's true message is. And here's the reason why, is because when he drops the bomb of free grace in chapter 3, verse 21, and starts expounding upon how someone is accepted simply by responding in faith to the gospel message, and it's all based on the work of Christ, and there's no work required on behalf of the believer, people want to look at that and they want to peg it with easy believism and they want to say well that's just too simple and well we need to see genuine fruit going on in somebody's life and so what happens is is they begin to slander the people who are holding fast to the gospel and notice that they are trying to distort it in this way and look at verse 8 again here's what they say let us do evil that good may come now if you want to write a little marginal reference here this will immediately connect to chapter 6, verse 1. If you want to write it in, it's a similar argument to what's brought up in chapter 6, verse 1. And the idea behind that is, the more that we sin, the more that grace would abound. So why not sin a whole lot so that you get a whole lot more grace? Why not eat a whole bunch of Brussels sprouts because I'm guaranteed to get infinitely more milkshake on top of that in order to wash it all down? That's a crazy argument. And so notice what he deals with here. Let us do evil that good may come. And here's his conclusion. Their condemnation is just. 
For them to go about and try to distort that and say, well, what Paul is really saying is, is sin a whole lot so that you get a whole lot of grace. Or if we sin a lot more, what we're going to see is that God is even more glorified by our sin. He's saying that is complete foolishness. It's a complete distortion of his message. It's taking advantage of the grace of God and abusing it in ridiculous ways. Let's not have anything to do with that. So it says here, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? And he says, not at all. And get this, because this really is the summary statement of this entire situation uh, dealing with the sins and atrocities that mankind is involved in. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or if you want to say Gentiles or pagans, any of those, are all under sin. Now, here's why this conclusion is vitally important. Is because we started this idea looking at the, at the point that we have peace with God. It's a present possession. If you have believed in Christ, you are in Christ. You have this permanent location in the Savior. With that, you've been declared righteous by the Father because of Jesus. And with that, you now have peace with God. But notice in this verse right here, chapter 3, verse 9... We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, every single person outside of the sphere of in Christ being is at war with God. That's what's going on. You may be at peace with the world, but you are at war with God. Then he goes in this section here, verses 10 through 18. Let's read it. Let's observe some things. As it is written, which automatically tells you it's going to refer to the Old Testament. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have a, a, a marginal reference for these sections here, uh, like for instance, as it is written, comma, we have beginning quotations, and then I've got a lowercase a that's written in there. I'm going to ask you to take your pen, and I'm going to ask you to underline in your Bible, underline the little marginal reference, the a there. And then if you look down in verse 13, right after where the quotation mark starts, A, underline that. After uh, you go down two lines, you've got B, underline that. The next one there, verse 14, you've got the quotation marks, A. Verse 15, A. Verse 18, A. I'm going to ask you to underline those little marginal references that they're going to take you over to because I want to show you a point that's very interesting about this whole section. It says here, verse 10, as it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. No one is righteous. And notice that Paul brings that up because righteousness is what is needed in order to be in good standing with God. We must be righteous. It's not a self-righteousness. A self-righteousness is always evoked by works, and it's always lacking in quality. It will never measure up. I don't care what the Catholic Church tells you. It will never measure up. So there is none righteous, not even one, not one person. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. In fact, this is what would be known as the natural man. If you want to write next to that, 1 Corinthians 2.14. That's the natural man in Scripture. In fact, I'm going to turn there real quick. You don't have to. You can do that later, but I want to read for you. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are foolishness. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually appraised. You say, well, how in the world does an unbeliever ever come to faith in Christ then if he can't understand the things of the Spirit of God? Hold on to that question and let's finish this up and we'll deal with it. It says here, there is none that seeks for God, verse 11, verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Then it moves to their speech. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." This is a long extended form of the exact assessment that God divinely gives in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, left up to ourselves, we always want unrighteousness. We always want ungodliness. We always fail in understanding what God is doing. We never want to seek after him. We always want to go down the wrong path. We always want to do the wrong thing. We're all guilty. We always want to say the wrong thing. If anybody's ever ticked you off, especially recently, and your first gut reaction is to smart off with something, say something in back talking, there's something in our hearts that just screams forward wanting to be let out that we would just tell somebody off and give them a head full. That's our sad condition. That's the warring condition with God. And yet we're told still in Romans 5.1 that peace is a present possession that we have. Now, why is all this important? Look at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and that would be the Jews in particular, so that every mouth, that's Jew and Gentile, may be closed, shut. There's not an argument to be given. And look at this. And all the world may become accountable to God. Now you'll notice at this point we're stepping into your page that hopefully you printed out in chapter 3 verses 19 through 31. And I want to point out something to you. Notice that it says we know that whatever the law says. And this idea is that it's referring back to the quotations that were just given. I have you had you underline the A's that were there, the references for the marginal references. And something I want you to notice here is that if you look at every one of those marginal references, in verse 10, in verse 13, twice in 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 18. You look over, and here's what you'll see. You're going to see, let's see here, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. You're going to see the quotation from Psalm 5 and Psalm 140. You're going to see the quotation from Psalm 10. You're going to see the quotation from Isaiah 59. You're going to see the quotation from Psalm 36. And yet it says that the law condemns us. It's speaking to us about our accountability before God and our inability to bring anything righteous to the table. Isn't it interesting that every one of those references has nothing to do with the first five books of the Old Testament? Which means that the law, what Paul means by the law here contextually, is the idea of the 39 books of the Old Testament as a whole. We have 39 books at the beginning of our Bibles that are often neglected and full of dust and cobwebs that have served two great purposes. Number one, it tells us the beauty and the wonderfulness of who our great God and Creator is. But number two, it lets us know you are guilty. You are guilty before a holy God. Are we Israel? No. Are we Jews? No. We are a separate program. We are the church in Jesus Christ. But you don't have to be a Jew or a Gentile to be guilty before a holy God. All the world, all the world, both Jew and Greek, are all under sin. All of us are charged as guilty. Now, if you're looking at your double-spaced paper here, I want you to notice that it says, now we, and I want you to write this in. Paying attention to the personal pronouns is very important. This is a personal, inclusive pronoun. And the reason why is when it says we, notice that Paul's including himself. Paul is not lording himself over them in a righteous position that they don't have. He's lumping himself in because at one time he was completely guilty as well. He says here, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law. Let me ask you a question. Anytime that I'm going through this and I see, uh, now we know, you know, do you not know those types of things? I always circle that word no, and I ask the question, do I know this? Are you aware of this? Are you privy to this information? Is this something that sets in your mind? Obviously, Paul thinks it's important for us to know. It says here, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, here's the reason for it, every mouth may be closed 
and all the world may become accountable to God. What excuse do you have for your sin? Being at war with God, apart from Christ, we are in a situation where we've got to have an answer. And we're just not capable of giving one that's going to suffice. There's no argument. There's no excuse that will ever be valid. The totality of humanity is guilty. No one gets by. No one gets a pass. The idea of accountable, being accountable, notice it's accountable to God. It's the idea of the fact that we have to give an answer. If you look up the Greek word for this, you get out your strongs and you want to look it up. It's the idea of being answerable in a situation, which tells us that there's a standard in place, and that standard is God's standard. It's the idea of we need to justify our behavior in a court of law. We need to give a reason for the wrongdoing. Oftentimes we pray it would suffice, as we saw in these earlier verses of Romans 3, but it doesn't. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, and you say, wait a second, I'm not under the law, I don't keep the law. No, but we break the law. And it's going to show us this. Because by the works of the law, any works that would be done, anything that we would do to try to gain acceptance with God, anything that we would, well, if I do this, I think God would love me more. If I serve in this way, I think that that God will uh, give me better pardon. No, not at all. Notice it says, no flesh. No flesh, and that's, that's put on purpose, because by the works of law, no flesh. The reason is, is because the flesh will never suffice. The flesh is an object of death. That's all it is. The flesh will never get better. That's why living the Christian life is not by works. It's never by works. When it becomes about works, it moves to the realm of the flesh. And when it moves to the realm of the flesh, it is dead works. So notice, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And he brings that up here because that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a situation where we are justified. In other words, we need a favorable verdict to be rendered. And we need to be vindicated before a holy God. Notice, no flesh will be justified in his sight. God does not accept the flesh. For, here it is, through, and there's where you want to put those two double underlines that are spaced apart and put the little arrow pointing in the direction. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law tells us what it is, and it tells us if we have done it. Let me give you another quote here from Ruth Paxson's book, Life on the Highest Plane. Again, this was written in 1928. Are you able to, to uh, secure a copy? I would highly encourage it. It's an excellent read thus far. I'm about 115 pages in it. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I think it would do much to help benefit your understanding of the Bible as a whole as well. Here's what she says. And we do have the quote up on the screen here. Everyone knows that humanity is saturated with sin and that sin is really at the bottom of all the world's trouble. But many people are unwilling to admit the real nature of sin. They treat it like a superficial skin disease rather than like a malignant cancer. Men are unwilling to acknowledge the truth of God's estimate of the natural man. That left to himself, he is hopelessly, incurably bad. They place the blame of his misconduct onto his environment or limited circumstances, and by seeking to improve these external conditions and to afford him larger opportunities through education and civilization, they believe he can be evolved into what God intended him to be. Now, guys, this was written in 1928. We didn't start entertaining this victim mentality and having this entitlement generation until about 15 or 20 years ago. And we are in a sad state of affairs She saw through this in 1928 simply by knowing what the Bible had to say about the nature of sin. What does that tell me? It tells me that we have not taken sin seriously enough in our society because we've gotten away from God. We've not dealt with sin the way that we need to. And therefore, the gospel does not show its reigning and glorious and gracious power that it manifests in Christ crucified because we do not believe that our condition is hopeless apart from him. That's our problem. She says here, such thinking is due to a fundamental misconception of what sin is. 
The essence of the first sin in Eden is clearly defined in God's word, and it is the essence of all sin from that day to this. The exceeding sinfulness of Adam's sin lay in the fact that it was high treason of the created against the creator, of the subject against the sovereign. Man is not only guilty and defiled, but he is rebellious and lawless. He is not only separated from God by sin, but he is unreconciled by enmity. In God's sight, he is a sinner, an enemy, an outlaw. True words. That is the condition of being at war with God. That is a sober appraisal of where we stand apart from peace, apart from vindication, apart from a favorable verdict in his sight. Now here's what's beautiful about this is verse 21 in Romans 3. But now, and I I, want to just keep preaching. You know we don't have Sunday school today. I want to keep preaching. I want to keep going. But I want to save this for next week. But we've got to touch it. Nobody wants to leave on the gloom and doom. I understand that. I don't either. We need some hope. But we need some hope because this world isn't providing us with any. But now, and I love it because that's a timing word. Now, apart from the law. Now notice that. Apart from anything to do with the law. Now this freaks out your work, salvation, and Ten Commandments keepers. Okay? The law has no part in the righteousness of God. It has no part in it. Is the law righteous? Yes, it is. Did God who is righteous write a righteous law? Yes, he did. But can we keep the law righteously? No, we cannot. Notice the problem is with the human condition. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, made known, explained, better understood. The veil has been taken off so that we can see it clearly. And what is it? It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament gave witness to this point. Notice what it says. Even the righteousness of God through faith, that is the means of appropriation in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Stop there. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you now have God's very own righteousness put on you. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You say, well, what about all this stuff about they can't understand the things of the Spirit, their foolishness to Him, there's none righteous, there's none who understands. Are we depraved and unable to save ourselves? Yes, we are, but we are not totally depraved in the means of what Reformed theology or Calvinism would like to promote. We are not totally unable to respond to the gospel. You say, well, aren't we sinful beyond compare? Yes, and there's nothing we can do to ever merit a salvation. There's nothing we can do to ever save ourselves. And this tells us our bad condition. There's none righteous, none understands, none seeks after God, everyone's turned aside, no one's good, our throats are open graves, we deceive with our tongues, we have poison on our lips, our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, we want to kill people rather than reconcile with people, we don't have a path of peace, we do not fear God. Yes, those are all things. But it does not say that when the gospel comes to your ears, to your mind, when you are approached with someone actually sharing the gospel with you, that you are unable to respond to to it left up to ourselves we would never seek after god but god has not left it up to ourselves god has moved forward through the conviction of the spirit he is convicting the world of sin righteousness and judgment we're told that in the gospel of john we're also told in the gospel of john that when christ is lifted up he will draw all men unto himself he is actively now drawing through the message of the cross all people everyone to himself not just a select group but everyone is being drawn. We're told in Romans chapter 2 that he's already written the law on our hearts. This conscience of knowing what is good and what is bad, what is evil, what is right, those types of things, has already been set forward. And also the word of God when it is preached, because that's how faith comes, that's how we appropriate uh, this righteousness, is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ, because he is our righteousness. That has happened as well. Does that mean that we can't respond? No. God is already actively pursuing people. 
He's been doing it. He's done it through the death of his son. He does it through the conviction of his spirit. He does it through the writing of the law on people's hearts, showing us that we are sinful. He does it through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. He does it through the proclamation of the blood shed to atone for sin. So yes, he's already doing that. You say, well, if you can't understand, if this is all part of the Spirit, you can't understand the things of the Spirit. How in the world can that work? Because it is the Word. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. It is the Word that is the active agent in the situation that generates faith in the believer. Just take God at His Word in this. Are we depraved and can do nothing to merit salvation? Yes, we are unable to be saved of our own. But God has gone to extraordinary lengths because he wants us to be partakers of his righteousness that he has made available in Christ our Lord. Folks, that is a glorious demonstration of what it is to extend mercy to a helpless, undeserving, messed up people. If you're someone who's listening today and you don't know Christ, know that God has gone to great lengths to secure all the work for you. He's put in great cost to himself because he simply wants you to be convinced of the truth that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Believe him. Believe him. And when you do, The righteousness of God is now accredited to your account. Notice it's not you became more righteous. You started acting more righteously. The only righteousness that suffices before a holy God is a righteousness that is his righteousness. And thank the Lord that Jesus Christ has that. And when he died, he took on the sins of the world and he gave to you and me righteousness. Righteousness for everyone who believes. There is a condition. You must believe. You must be convinced that it's true. And if you are convinced that it's true, you've responded in faith. You've already done it. You don't need to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, join a church, send in your tithe, all that other stuff. All of that is 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 a, a, a camouflage, a, a means of subterfuge in order to get around the main point. The main point is the fact that Jesus Christ has secured all the work for you. When you believe in him, you are then justified, you are declared righteous, you are vindicated in the sight of God, by God, because he sees you through Christ. In fact, it's interesting, we, we, we see at this beginning part of Romans chapter 3, just a terrible situation in how people try to weasel their way out of this. In Lewis Sperry Chafer's Systematic Theology, he writes this incredible statement. He says, the same righteousness which once condemned the sinner, will, when that sinner is justified, defend his perfect standing in Christ forever. Let me read that one more time so you can think about it. The same righteousness which once condemned the sinner, will, when that sinner is justified, defend his perfect standing in Christ forever. In other words, there was a time for all of us when God was against us. We were at war with him. We had enmity. If you can hear this, but it's the idea of me beating my knuckles against one another. We were constantly butting heads against him, not wanting to go his way, wanting nothing to do with him, smacking away all hands that reached out to us in order to give us the gospel. And we were in a position where we were going to be condemned, and God was going to be righteous in doing so because we had violated obscenely his standard. It is incredible to think that out of all that God has done in sending forward his spirit and sending forward his son and the death and the message of the cross and the law written on our hearts, that we can actually be standing perfectly in his sight because of Jesus and the righteousness that would have justifiably damned us will now justifiably defend our right to be there for all time as accepted in his presence because we are in complete alignment with his standard of perfection. And that is everything embodied in Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. I hope that makes your heart worship 
I hope it overwhelms you with undeservedness. And rightfully so, because we are never deserving. But makes you see the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is pivotal. He is indispensable. He is our righteousness before God. He is our justification before God. He is our peace. We have every reason to praise him. Pray with me, please. Father, our tongues could never say enough about Jesus. We could never glorify him enough. could never exalt him enough. could never magnify his holy name enough. And I praise you, God, that because we are accepted by his work in your sight, we get to praise him forever. It's going to take that long to begin to attribute 1% of what he's worth on our behalf. God, at this moment, we may not feel peace. Lord, let us rest in the fact that Jesus Christ is our peace. And I pray our feelings would conform to that fact. Jesus, you are great. You are beyond understanding and comprehension, and yet you invite us all the time, know me, know me, know me that we would just increase in the knowledge of all that God has done. This is Paul's cry all throughout his letters. Thank you, Lord, that you accept us because of your Son. We know we're unacceptable, but we don't have to be. Jesus is for us. Let's look to him. Focus on Him. Rest in Him. Cling to Him. Appreciate Him. Worship. Adore. Glorify Him. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. We pray it in His name. Amen.